Section 24 of the Underground Railroad, Part 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Underground Railroad, Part 4, by William Still. Section 24. Arrival from Richmond, 1858. Henry Langhorn, alias William Scott. This chattel from Richmond, Virginia, was of a yellow complexion, with some knowledge of the arts of reading and writing. He was about twenty-three years of age, and considered himself in great danger of being subjected to the auction block by one Charles L. Hobson. Hobson and Henry had grown up from boyhood together. For years they had even occupied the same room, Henry as a servant-boy and protector of his prospective young master. Under these relations quite strong affinities were cemented between them, and Henry succeeded in gaining a knowledge of the alphabet, with an occasional lesson in spelling. Both reached their majority. William was hired out at the American Hotel, and being a smart, likely-looking boy, commanded good wages for his young master's benefit, who had commenced business as a tobacco merchant, with about seven head of slaves in his possession. A year or two's experiment proved that the young master was not succeeding as a merchant, and before the expiration of three years he had sold all his slaves except Henry. From such indications Henry was fully persuaded that his time was well nigh at hand, and great was his anxiety as he meditated over the auction block. In his heart he resolved time and again that he would never be sold. It behooved him, therefore, to avert that ill fate. He at first resolved to buy himself, but in counting the cost he found that he would by no means be able to accumulate as much money as his master would be likely to demand for him. He therefore abandoned this idea, and turned his attention straightway to the Underground Railroad, by which route he had often heard of slaves escaping. He felt the need of money, and that he must make and save an extra quarter whenever he could. He soon learned to be a very rigid economist, and being exceedingly accommodating in waiting upon gentlemen at the hotel and at the springs, he found his little pile increasing weekly. His object was to have enough to pay for a private berth on one of the Richmond steamers, and also to have a little left to fall back on after landing in a strange land and among strangers. He saved about two hundred dollars in cash. He was then ready to make a forward move, and he arranged all his plans with an agent in Richmond to leave by one of the steamers during the Christmas holidays. "'You must come down to the steamer about dark,' said the agent, "'and if all is right you will see the Underground Railroad agent come out with some ashes as a signal, and by this you may know that all is ready.' "'I will be there, certain,' said Henry. Christmas week, he was confident, would be granted as usual as a holiday week. 
A few days before Christmas he went to his master and asked permission to spend said holiday with his mother in Cumberland County, adding that he would need some spending money, enough at least to pay his fare, etc. Young master freely granted his request, wrote him a pass, and doled him out enough money to pay his fare thence, but concluded that Henry could pay his way back out of his extra change. Henry expressed his obligations, etc., and returned to the American Hotel. The evening before the time appointed for starting on his Underground Railroad voyage, he had occasion to go out to see the Underground Railroad agent, and asked the clerk to give him a pass. This favor was peremptorily refused. Henry, not willing to give it up so, sat down to write a pass for himself. He found it all that was necessary, and was thus enabled to accomplish his business satisfactorily. Next day his Christmas holiday commenced, but instead of his enjoying the sight of his mother, he felt that he had seen her for the last time in the flesh. It was a sad reflection. That evening at dark he was at the wharf according to promise. The man with the ashes immediately appeared and signaled him. In his three suits of clothing, all on his back, he walked on the boat and was conducted to the coal covering where Egyptian darkness prevailed. The appointed hour for the starting of the steamer was ten o'clock the following morning. By the aid of prayer he endured the suffering that night. No sooner had the steamer got under way than a heavy gale was encountered, for between three and four days the gale and fog combined threatened the steamer with a total loss. All the freight on deck, consisting of tobacco and cotton, had to be thrown overboard to save the passengers. Henry, in his state of darkness, saw nothing, nor could he know the imminent peril that his life was in. Fortunately he was not seasick, but slept well and long on the voyage. The steamer was five days coming. On landing at Philadelphia, Henry could scarcely see or walk. The spirit of freedom, however, was burning brightly in the hidden man and the free gales of fresh air and a few hours on free soil soon enabled him to overcome the difficulties which first presented themselves, and he was soon one of the most joyful mortals living. He tarried two days with his friends in Philadelphia, and then hastened on to Boston. After being in Boston two months, he was passing through the market one day, when, to his surprise, he espied his young master, Charles L. Hobson. Henry was sure, however, that he was not recognized, but suspected that he was hunted. Instantly Henry pulled up his coat-collar and drew his hat over his face, to disguise himself as much as possible. But he could not wholly recover from the shock he had thus sustained. He turned aside from the market, and soon met a friend, formerly from Richmond, who had been in servitude in the tobacco factory owned by his master. Henry tried to prevail on him to spot out said Hobson in the market, and see if there possibly could be any mistake. Not a step would his friend take in that direction. He had been away for several years, still he was a fugitive, and didn't like the idea of renewing his acquaintance with old or new friends with a white skin from Virginia. 
Henry, however, could not content himself until he had taken another good look at Mr. Hobson. Disguising himself, he again took a stroll through the market, looking on the right and left as he passed along. Presently he saw him, seated at a butcher's stall. He examined him to his satisfaction, and then went speedily to headquarters, the anti-slavery office, made known the fact of his discovery, and stated that he believed his master had no other errand in Boston than to capture him. Measures were at once taken to ascertain if such a man as Charles L. Hobson was booked at any of the hotels in Boston. On finding that this was really a fact, Henry was offered and accepted private quarters with the well-known philanthropist and friend of the fugitive, Francis Jackson. His house, as well as his purse, was always open to the slave. While under the roof of Mr. Jackson, as Hobson advertised and described Henry so accurately, and offered a reward of $250 for him, Henry's friends thought that they would return him the compliment by publishing him in the Boston papers quite as accurately, if not with as high a reward for him. They advertised him after this manner. Charles L. Hobson, 22 years of age, 6 feet high, with a slouched hat on, mixed coat, black pants, with a goatee, is stopping at the Tremont Hotel, etc., etc., this was as a bombshell to Mr. Hobson, and he immediately took the hint, and with his trunks steered for the sunny south. In a day or two afterwards, Henry deemed it advisable to visit Canada. After arriving there, he wrote back to his young master to let him know where he was, and why he left, and what he was doing. How his letter was received, Henry was never informed. For five years he lived in Boston, and ran on a boat trading to Canada East. He saved up his money, and took care of himself creditably. He was soon prepared to go into some business that would pay him better than running on the boat. Two of his young friends agreed with him that they could do better in Philadelphia than in Boston. So they came to the city of brotherly love, and opened a first-class dining saloon near Third and Chestnut Streets. For a time they carried on the business with enterprise and commendable credit. But one of the partners, disgusted with the prejudices of the city passenger railway cars, felt that he could no longer live here. Henry, known after leaving slavery only by the name of William Scott, quitted the restaurant business and found employment as a messenger under Thomas A. Scott, Esquire, vice-president of the Pennsylvania Central Railroad, where he has faithfully served for the last four years, and has the prospect of filling the office for many years to come. He is an industrious, sober, steady, upright, and intelligent young man, and takes care of his wife and child in a comfortable three-story brick house of his own. End of section 24